I like how they read the scripture, didn't y'all? That was really good. And, uh, and, and it kept uh, our focus on the word. And so I almost didn't mention the missions conference because I wanted to just go right into uh, the word. But with that little addendum, let's pray right now and, and dive into Jonah 2. Father, we thank you for your word to us. It's, it's life-giving. As I say quite often, God, if it wasn't for the word of God, the Bible, I, I'd have nothing to say up here. I really wouldn't. It'd just be pure conjecture about what I might think about you. But you have given us, given us your word. And so we rally around it, we teach it, we stay close to it. And so as we uh, parse out the text today, what you've said in this story to us, may we understand it rightly and apply it diligently in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Uh, amen. Well, uh, we are in week three, so just about halfway through a five-week look at the Old Testament story or book of Jonah. And if you've been with us so far, you know that really the simple theme that this story is about is running running. Uh, Jonah's running from God. We're going to take a look at how he runs to God today. Next week we're going to take a look at how he runs for God and then eventually learns to run with God. The whole, the whole thing's about running. And I don't know about you, but I love it when the scriptures use very simple, easy to grab onto word pictures. Jesus did that a lot when it comes to uh, our spiritual lives. And just on a really personal level, I just really resonate with the idea of running. Uh, when I was in a high school, a freshman in high school back in the late 70s, I entered high school extremely small. In fact, I will tell you, I was 4 foot 10 inches high, and I weighed 85 pounds. Let's just say I hadn't hit puberty yet as a freshman in high school. And so I was really tiny, and, and, I, uh, and, and one more than anything, what I wanted to do was play football. Now, do we all understand football is a contact sport? And, uh, and yet I'd watched football for years, I wanted to play it, so I went out for the freshman football team, little rural high school outside of Cleveland, and I made the team. And I thought that was great until I found out that everybody made the team. And so I, uh, I, I made the team, and in this little small town, I became the fourth string tailback at Chagrin Falls High School on the freshman team. Now guys, I don't think I've ever heard of a fourth-string tailback in my life since then. It just simply meant that there were three other guys that were much better tailbacks than I was, and they were going to let me play. So the last two minutes of every game, because we had a great year that year, they'd throw me in. And I learned very quickly that though I was enamored with the, the glamour of football, that I didn't like to hit people, which is like a bad sport to play if you don't like to hit people. And, and so I'd go in, and they'd tell me to block, and I just wouldn't do it. You know, I'd just, like, I'd run away from the tackle, and then they'd give me the football and I'd be terrified and I, I ended the year not with a very good record and so the coach was a really good man and I'll never forget he called me into his office shut the door and and in the most gentle way anybody had ever done to up to that point in my life he said Jamie he said I'm so proud that you went out for football and I just want to let you know that Chagrin Falls High School offers other fall sports during the same time and he said, I'm just thinking that in your sophomore year, there might be another sport that you might feel a little bit more fulfilled in. And I said, like what? And he listed the sports. So the next season, I ditched football, and I was kind of glad, and I went out for cross country. And I realized really quickly that the Lord had made me good at running. I learned that in football, too, just in the wrong way. And, uh, and, and I realized I could run. And so for the rest of my high school season, the only two sports I did were cross country and then track. And I got into college and I ran marathons. And even to this day where now I got the middleweight bulge, I still love to jog. And it's just a sport that I really enjoy. So I get to Jonah and what happens is, is that I really relate to a guy who runs from God. 
And not just on a physical level, but as I've already told you guys in this series, I personally relate to a guy who tends to run from God in his personal and his spiritual life. Some of you are saying, what's that about? If you haven't been with us in this series, let me just give you a very, very quick 60-second review of where we've come from. Look up here on the screen. This is chapter 1. Three movements. It begins with a call. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, and many of us know what it said. It said, go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, this pagan nation to the north, and tell them about the Lord. Tell them to turn to the Lord. It's a call that God gave to lots of prophets back in the Old Testament. And yet, unlike most all the other prophets, Jonah's response, this is the second movement of the story in chapter 1, was to run. Give me a click here, guys. He ran from God. You can read all of Isaiah. He didn't do that. Ezekiel didn't do that. Jeremiah didn't do that. Amos didn't do that. Uh, None of the prophets really ran from God's call. They all kind of said, well, the fear of the Lord is in me, and they said what God told them to say. Jonah just says, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to say what God wants me to say because we'll see why in chapters 3 and 4, but he says, I'm getting out of here. So he goes from Jerusalem to the town of Joppa, which is along the Mediterranean Sea there. He jumps on a boat to Tarshish, which I showed you guys on the map, is like the opposite direction from Nineveh, and he's running from God's call. And then the third movement, what we looked at last week, is the chase, that God's action was to chase behind Jonah and to run after him. It says the Lord was in the sea, the Lord was in the fish. Jonah was right there, or God was right there behind Jonah. Three movements that we've looked at, all taking place in chapter one, a call, a response, and then God's action. And so Jonah is running from God. And all I can say, folks, is what an all-important topic this is for us today. You might remember me sharing with you already that I have yet to meet one person who's honest about their lives, seeker or believer, who hasn't at some point run from God in their lives. It's part of our fallen nature. It's part of the temptation we have in our pride to live self-sufficient lives. And so many of us, all of us, can relate to this idea of turning our backs and running from God. We stray. We go our own way. We get off the beaten path, and we decide to blaze our own trail. And so the big question that I want us to wrestle with today is this, that when we run from God, when we stray from him, how do we get back? How do we turn back to him amidst all the confusion, guilt, shame, and perceived distance that there is between him and us? I mean, I know we looked at last week the fact that God chases us when we run, and in a figurative sense, it's right behind us, But how do we actually turn toward him when we're running and reconnect with him when we've been doing that? That's the question that I need us to deal with today. And thankfully, Jonah chapter 2, what we read for you earlier, gives us the answer. Three things I want you to take with you today as we think about running to God. Three things that Jonah teaches us about how to turn and face the God who is chasing right after us when we're running from him. And the first thing is simply this. Look up here on the screen, and that is that we need to get to the end of our human limitations. Folks, this is such a critical step. And I mean critical. We need to get to the end of our human limitations if we're ever can even think about turning to God. And do you know why most of us initially and internally run from God in the first place? Think about this with me. It's because we think that we can live life on our own, right? 
I mean, we think that we can do just fine, thank you, without God in our lives at this time, and so we stray, we run. It's just the sin of self-sufficiency. We are made to be dependent on God, but there's a part of our fallen nature that says, eh, you can do life without him. And so we turn and we go our own way. We run, if you will, and try to live life without him. And so think about this with me. With that said, wouldn't it make sense then that what's going to cause us to turn back to him is to realize the extent of our own limitations, how fragile and miserable we are without him, and to recognize how much we need him. In other words, if the great temptation is to do life without God, then certainly what's going to turn us back to him is getting to the end of our rope and trying to do life without him, get to the end of our limitations. And so consider what's happening here in chapter 2 of our story with Jonah. Jonah's in the belly of the whale, having run from God, and he's now in trouble. And he begins praying. And yet it's not just any prayer that you read about in the Bible, but this is a prayer that is all about remembering what had been going on between him and God while Jonah was being tossed about in the sea. It's a very formal prayer that he prays here, very psalm-like and Hebrew-like, but at the same time intensely personal and intimate. It's a prayer that's reciting out loud the trauma of being thrown overboard, tossed about in the sea, and then swallowed by a big fish. And yet he's also talking about where God is in the midst of this trauma and how Jonah turned back to God. So let's break this thing down. Look, look at what he says in this prayer. Look at verses 3 and then 5 and 6. Jonah says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Pause right there. It's simply a graphic description of a man who's been thrown overboard, right? He's surrounded. Waves and seas are around him. So the sea is beginning to get the best of him. And then it heats up. Look at verses 5 to 6. It says, And the waters, he says, And the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought me up from the life, up, brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. And so simply after a while in the stormy sea, what Jonah basically says is I started to drown. And we would imagine that. I started to drown. He says, water closed in over my life to take over my life. And as he was starting to sink under, he got to the bottom of the sea. He says, weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. So don't miss this. Jonah, as he was drowning, felt completely trapped and helpless. He says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. It's prison imagery. He's saying, I'm in prison. I'm in this water, I'm at the end of my rope, I'm on the bottom of the ocean, I'm about to die, I'm in a lot of trouble. Uh, don't miss this. Jonah could run from Jerusalem to Joppa on his own. He could find a boat going to Tarshish on his own. He could even deal with the sailors and the captain and that whole fiasco on his own. But now that he's alone in the raging scene, see, he has got to the end of his limitations and he can't deal with it any longer on his own. He even says there in verse 2, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried out to God. Some of you might not be familiar with the Old Testament going, what's Sheol? Sheol is kind of another name for the New Testament version of hell. 
It's not exactly the same. It's not as full-blown of a concept. But the only two descriptions you have of the afterlife in the Old Testament are the really positive one out of Genesis in which they say, I rested with my fathers, which is like really positive. That's probably closer to heaven. And then you got this description of Sheol, which is kind of a dark underworld term, not a very positive conception of the afterlife. And that's exactly what Jonah is saying, is I'm about to enter into that. So don't miss the point that the writer of Jonah is trying to make here. He's trying to tell us that Jonah reached his limitations. He was at the end of what he realized he could do in his own strength, and he needed outside help. And this becomes then, folks, the first step to running back to God. Because I'm telling you, without this, you're not going to turn back to Him. And though it's painful and humbling, it's nevertheless so needed if we're ever going to find God and turn to Him when we run. I don't want this truth to escape us here. I really need us to understand this. Look up here on the screen. Um, for years, I made a distinction in, in helping people pastorally between what I call woundedness and brokenness. And, and if you don't hear anything else today, you're really going to want to latch onto those two terms because I think they can become really good friends to you. Woundedness versus brokenness. You're saying, what's the difference? Well, I would suggest to you that everyone in this world, no matter who you are, has experienced some form of woundedness. All of us are wounded. All of us have experienced some kind of pain or heartache by living in this fallen world, right? So if you and I were having a cup of coffee and I said, tell me about your wound, tell me about how you've experienced woundedness in this world, you might tell me about the loss of a loved one or a painful childhood memory or a current job dissatisfaction or a marital breakdown or doubt or disappointment in your faith or profound loneliness. I mean, the list is endless of things that you and I experience in a wounded, fallen world. We carry our wounds with us. I like how one author says it. He says, everybody walks with a limp. Every one of us walks with some kind of limp. But think about it. Not everybody is broken in their woundedness. You see, brokenness is the point where people get to when they realize that in their woundedness, the devices they've been using to make life work don't work. A brokenness is a breaking point in humility when a person says, hey, I'm only one person. I can take only so much. I might be strong and even stronger than many that I know, but even I got my limits. You see, brokenness, folks, is the realization in your woundedness of how finite you are that causes you to look to the infinite one himself. And so the resultant realization of a broken person is that we have been created to be in needful communion with God as well as load-bearing community with other people. In short, brokenness is a breaking point that allows you to realize how much you need God in your life. And I would simply submit to you that though everybody is wounded, we all know not everybody gets to a point of brokenness. I know lots of wounded people who have yet to cry uncle, don't you? I know lots of wounded people who have said, I'm still going to make life work using my own devices, doing it my own way. Forget about God and His truth. And yet the reality is, is that until you get to that place of brokenness, we saw that in our video here, until you get to that place, you're never going to cry out to Him, which is we're going to see is the second step. And just so that we really understand this, one of the cool things I love about brokenness is that brokenness can come in many different forms, in many different ways to people's lives. And what I mean by that is that we tend to think of brokenness as only coming in the form, tell me if this isn't true, 
of personal and tragic crisis, like it did with Jonah. In other words, I hear people talk about this time that, that, that brokenness only comes when somebody finally has some sort of tragedy in their life that wakes them up to their woundedness and their need for God. So somebody might be digging their heels in uh, in not loving their wife, and then their marriage goes south. Or somebody spends money wildly and out of control, and they get into financial crisis. Or they don't love their kids very well, and their kids rebel and, and start to experience trouble. Or, you know, we drink too much and then fall into alcoholism. I mean, so many things that we do in this fallen world that lead to personal crisis and tragedy that then lead to a point of brokenness. It happens a lot. But please realize it doesn't always have to work that way. Because you see, the heart of brokenness, now don't miss this, is not crisis. The heart of brokenness is awareness. It's an awareness of who we are, fallen and finite, and the desperate need we have for God. And you can have awareness without crisis. That's the cool thing about brokenness. I call it the easy way or the hard way to brokenness. The hard way is when you dig your heels in, don't listen to your godly friends, don't listen to your godly spouse, don't listen to your godly grandmother, don't listen to all these people that love you, dig your heels in, continue in that sinful attitude or behavior and allow your life to go downhill. And then it gets downhill to the point where crisis comes into your life and tragedy, and then you go, oh, I guess I need God. And then you kind of pull the ripcord and you ask God for help. And as we're going to see, he does. And you're now in a broken place and you found God. That's all good and fine. But it was the awareness that led you to him. It was the awareness that brought brokenness. And there's an easy way to brokenness too. And that's simply to wake up every morning and say, I'm finite. To wake up every morning and with humility say, you know, there's going to be some press releases about me uh, today in my sphere of influence in which people are going to think I really got my act together. People are going to think I'm really good. People are going to think that I've really arrived. And you know what you say to that? Hogwash. Somebody said to me the other day, use a lot of Midwest euphemisms. I said, like what? They said hogwash. Anyways, like hogwash. It's just not true. The reality is you might fool everybody else around you, but God knows he knows the composition of your human heart and how fallen you are and how, at the end of the day, frail you really are. And if you recognize that, the Bible calls that humility. Not seeing yourself as God's gift to humankind. And humility is a bedfellow of brokenness because humility allows you to have an awareness of your need for God and to be in that broken place. I, I, there's a service provider that I use in uh, north, north, north of here uh, to fix my car. And uh, I found him two years ago when I first came here, and I got to know him pretty well, and uh, I got to know him because when he found out I was a pastor, I was asking for a pastoral discount, no I wasn't, when he found out I was a pastor, <laughs> don't you hate it when pastors do that, hey you got a pastor discount, you cheapskate, anyways, <laughs> when he found out I was a pastor, he said to me, um, you know, I just became a Christian, and I said, really, tell me about that, and, uh, and he told me this story that was just, quite frankly, a somewhat common story about how you know, his marriage had gone downhill and his wife had left him and there's a custody battle with the kids and he lost the house and was in financial ruin and, and, and he went and saw a counselor and this counselor was a Christian and uh, first thing this counselor did, rightly so, was shared the gospel with him and led him to the Lord. And, and he said, man, you know, I just, I've found Christ and I feel like I've come home and it's great and he's still dealing with all of these, these problems but he's really found Christ. He, he's just a prime example of somebody, and we all know stories like this, who has found the hard way to brokenness. You know, his life went downhill, the trajectory, and in that brokenness, like Jonah, found God. Uh, 
I have another friend in Kansas City who uh, was, was raised in a, uh, a Christian home. And from early on, since he was a little guy, can remember accepting Christ and walking with him. And his parents raised him just to be a really humble kid. He's a very gifted man. He's got a PhD in industrial psychology, and he's a consultant, and even in this economy is doing very, very well. But, um, but, but, he, but he's just very humble in nature. He's never read his own press releases. He wakes up every morning, and he's got a wife and three beautiful kids, and he just, in thankfulness, just says, Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've blessed me with. Kind of like a Job type of thing. And if you start to say, gosh, you're just such a successful guy and all this, I mean, he knows God has given him gifts, but he, but he gives them back to God. And he, he just has a, he's got a humility about him. Now, all of us know what I'm talking about. That's just, you're the kind of guy you want to be around. He's got an awareness, a brokenness about him that allows him to connect with God and love others in really life-giving ways. I think that's the difference between the easy way and the hard way. There's an easy way to brokenness in the sense of being humble and recognizing who you are and who God is. There's the hard way of digging your heels in and because of what Eugene Peterson calls God's severe mercy. He loves you so much. He's going to bring something severe in your life to bring you to him. Many times it works that way. And so please don't miss, folks. The important thing is not how does brokenness come to your life, but has it come to your life? Do you have an awareness where you reach the end of your own limitations and realize the utter inexhaustible need that you have for God, the same God that made you and loves you. It's the first step to running back to Him and an all-important one at that. Without it, you're never going to turn and face the God who is chasing you. you got to get to the end of your limitations. Now, interestingly, we're not at God yet. That's just step one. I mean, all we have now is an awareness of our need for him, right? But you're still running. So the question becomes, well, what's next? Look up here on the screen. Here's the second thing Jonah teaches us, and that is that we now need to choose to call out to God from our brokenness. We need to call out to God. This is really fascinating how clear and obvious this is in the text here. Uh, Look at verses 1 and 2 and then 4 and then 7 and 8 of Jonah 2. And notice what Jonah does now that he's experienced this brokenness in his lives. I love this. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord from the God of, from, to the Lord God from, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out, if you underline your Bible, underline that, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, here it is again, I cried, and you heard my voice. Then skip down to verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, and I shall again look upon your holy temple. Then verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. It's like a scratch CD. It says, I prayed, I called out, I cried, I again looked upon, I remembered, my prayer came to you. I mean, I don't know about you folks, but this guy seems to be crying out to God like a lot. And and most important with me, notice that this was a choice that Jonah made. It was a choice. And you say, how do you know it was a choice? It's because I don't think the most opportune time for a prayer meeting is in the belly of a whale, right? And so we have to believe that Jonah chose to call out to God in the midst of his brokenness and his distress. And not everybody does that. 
I know lots of people, and so do you, who in their woundedness now start to experience brokenness, and yet they are still refusing to call out to God, and you sometimes wonder, what's it going to take? What's it going to take for you to finally call out to him? Well, Jonah is doing that. He's calling out. In verse 1, it says he prayed. In verse 2 and 4, it says he called out and looked again at God. In verses 7 and 8, while he was fainting away, it says he remembered and prayed. This guy reached the end of his limitations. He's now calling out to God. He didn't care about the setting and he didn't care about the circumstances. This is the second step that you and I need to take from this, that when we get to the end of our limitations, if we're willing to call out to him, there's a good chance he'll respond. And we're now in the process of turning and running back to him. Look up here on the screen. I want to show you the, I think, very linear, in a linear fashion, as many of you know, so I can't read the scriptures without trying to see how A equals B equals C. As far as I can tell, here's what's happening in chapter 2. Jonah is hopeless and stuck at the end of chapter 1. You'd be hopeless and stuck, too, if you were in the raging sea about ready to drown. But then he's in the belly of the whale, and he chooses to call out to God. And then we see at the end of chapter 2 that God moves and acts as a result of that. In other words, it says God commanded the whale to spew him up onto dry land. And I think this is the way God's economy works. That when we get hopeless and stuck, and at times in our lives we do, and we choose to call out, God is so good, he's so gracious that he acts and he moves when we do this. And I know how some of you think. You're thinking right now, well, aren't these just foxhole prayers, Jamie? I mean, aren't these just parachute prayers? I mean, Jonah's only calling out because he was free-falling and he's in trouble. You know how I respond to that? I'm like, well, yeah, duh. I mean, of course he's calling out because he's in trouble. But what's wrong with that? It's just humbling to our prideful souls to do that. And so check this out, folks. Unlike other people who can be so judgmental, God doesn't say to us, oh, you're just calling out to me because you're stuck and in need. Why didn't you do that when you were so self-sufficient? He didn't do that. He knows that we're stuck. He knows that we're in need. He's just happy that we're finally calling out to him. I tried to tell you guys this last week because most people fail to see Jonah this way. This is really a story of grace. It's profound and life-giving grace being talked about here. Jonah ran. Did God owe it to him to run after him? No, but he did. Jonah's in the belly of a whale being digested, I don't mean to gross you out, but digested alive by whale digestive juices. Did God owe it to Jonah to save him from that? No. Jonah's choice to go there but when he chooses to call out, God says, I will respond with my grace and spew you up onto dry land. And though that couldn't have been fun, I'll bet you Jonah would rather be there than in the belly of the whale, right? It's all about grace. It's about God's love for him. But yet here's what we need to realize. We must choose to call out. Or I love how the New International Version says it in verse 8 there. It says if we don't, we forfeit the grace that could be ours. Oh, I love that. If we fail to call out, we forfeit the grace that could have been ours. I'm going to give you a chance here in a little bit, just a few minutes, to call out to him, but chew on that. Forfeit the grace. Who'd want to do that? So, we've hit our limitations. We've called out to God. And there's one more really important thing that by far is the most important thing of everything going on in this story to finding our way back into relationship with the Lord. So here's the third thing that Jonah teaches us that we must know if we're going to turn back to God, and that is that we must come to him 
through his son, Jesus Christ. We need to come to him through Jesus Christ. And some of you are saying, wow, like, I know that's not in the text, so where did you get that? It actually is in the text. Uh, look at verses 9 and 10 of Jonah chapter 2 here. This is fascinating. Jonah's speaking. He says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on dry land. Focus on that little phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's probably the closest in the Old Testament you're going to get to um, a New Testament phrase of just the fact that God is the one who saves, that God is the one who brings salvation, deliverance, forgiveness to our lives. And uh, isn't it fascinating that uh, at the end of this chapter, end of chapter 2 here, with Jonah being in the belly of the whale three days, spewed up on dry land, that when Jesus would come on the scene 600 years later, he would bounce off of this entire chapter, this chapter that we're in right now, and, and make a huge object lesson out of it for you and me. In other words, Jesus took the story of Jonah and made an analogy and a prophecy out of it, this little phrase, salvation uh, belongs to the Lord, uh, for us. So I want you to look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 to 41. I, I don't usually skip around much here, but the text demands that we look at this. Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 to 41. And, uh, and, and I want you to notice what Jesus says about this story, again, some 600 years later from when it took place. Jesus says this. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Theologians call this the sign of Jonah. It's mentioned twice here in Matthew, once in the Gospel of Luke. And there are two components to it, as I told you earlier. We have an analogy going on here between Jesus and Jonah, as well as a prophecy, a prediction bouncing off of the story of Jonah of what Jesus was going to do for us. So don't miss the analogy here. There's like four components to it. Very quickly, in both accounts, there's an instrument of redemption. Jonah was redemption for the whale, and Jesus is our redemption through his death on a cross for our sins. In both accounts, secondly, we have God's choice and will to save. In other words, it's about grace. God chose the fish for Jonah. God chose Jesus for you and for me. Thirdly, in Jonah's story, we have God preserving Jonah in Sheol. You guys remember that. And, and in Jesus' account, we have God preserving Jesus in death. Three nights and three days in both cases. And then fourthly, both Jonah and Jesus are ejected out of their three-night stay because neither death nor digestive juices were going to hold them down. So isn't that fascinating? All four analogies are about redemption. They're about deliverance. In Jonah, obviously just deliverance from a specific circumstance. But in Jesus' case, trying to let us know through a prophetic utterance that he was here to deliver us eternally from our sin. You see, that's what the gospel is, folks. I hope you never forget this. I hope you know what you've been saved from, or if you're not a believer here today, that maybe you'll become one. Because the Bible says it so simply. It says that all of us, like Jonah, are stuck in the belly of the whale. We're stuck in our sin. This world and its digestive juices are eating us up. Our sin is eating us up. 
And God, in his wonderful grace, decided not to leave us there, but he came to us 2,000 years ago in the man Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, lived a sinless life, went to the cross, died the death that you should have died, so that you might be forgiven for your sins, rose on the third day to prove who he was and his victory over death. And the Bible says, if you believe and trust in him, if you come to the point in your life where you accept him as Lord and Savior, then you too will now have eternal life. Jesus is our way to God. But one of the greatest confusions of American Christianity is that we have become very theocentric, meaning God-centered. So we really believe, many people, that if you're just a good believer in God and you go to church, then that means you're a Christian. Couldn't be farther from the truth. There's lots of people who are good believers in God and yet they have nothing really to do with a personal relationship with Christ. And so they're theocentric in their lives, but they're not Christocentric. They don't have a faith in Christ that can really save them eternally. And the reality is, is that it's through Jesus and what he has done for us that we have a life-giving relationship with God. You need to call him by his name, and his name is Jesus. And he is the one who has come for you. And that's what Jesus was trying to communicate to us here in the sign of Jonah. The whale was the instrument of deliverance for Jonah. Jesus is the instrument of deliverance for you and for me. So let me ask you once again. I've asked you this every week in this series. Are you running from God in any way in your life right now? Are you? I confessed at the beginning of our message time here today that I'm a good runner. And I don't mean that just physically. I told you guys last week, won't bore you with it again, the story about how I initially ran from God as a new believer, and God had to call me back to him. And since then, though there haven't been too many times where I've run in huge ways, about every week I'm tempted to run in certain ways. Can you own that today? I mean, there's lots of times where I go through a day and I'm living a very self-sufficient, self-satisfied life, and I know that I'm running from him. And I need to learn to turn back to him. How do I do that? I need to get to the end of my limitations. I need to have brokenness be my mantra. I need to call out to him and verbally acknowledge his lordship over my life. And then I need to do that through Jesus. And to remember that Jesus is the one who has the power and the authority over my life to forgive me my sin and bring me to my heavenly father. I mentioned earlier that I want to give you guys a chance to uh, respond here today. I think response is a good thing. And, and you know, sometimes when we ask you to respond, we have you fill out a card or every head bowed and have you look up to me or even walk an aisle. And I think sometimes a great way to have you respond is just for you to uh, be where you are right now and have a very pregnant, quiet moment with the Lord. You don't do that enough in church. We always have sound, we always have visuals, we're always doing something. And uh, we were talking this week and we thought, you know, we need to just give you a chance, each of you, in this very, very safe place, just to be alone with God, you and him, with four or five minutes of quiet. It's going to seem like an eternity for some of you. I mean, you're going to go, yikes, I don't think I've been quiet for four or five minutes since the womb or something like that. And uh, that's indicative of a, a too fast-paced, not quite enough life. We want to give you a chance right now just to, if you will, to do some business with God. Look up here on the screen. Give me three clicks real quick here, guys. Um, there we go. One more. 
one more there and one more. Good. Um, there's some of you who have been running all of your life. In other words, you, you, like most Americans, think you're a Christian because, like, you're not a Turk, so what are you? And, uh, and, and so you've been running all your life, but, but you, you know deep down you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. You're not a Christian in the biblical sense of the word. You're a cultural Christian because you uh, were born in America and go to church. I was that way much of my early life. And, and yet today you realize, because we just explained the gospel to you, that it's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in which secures eternal life for you and gives you a relationship with God now. And I want to give you a chance, and again, in that quiet moment between you and God, just for you to come to him for the very first time through Jesus. And you say, how do I do that? It's really not hard. Just call out to him. Tell him what you know already. Tell him of your need for him. Tell him of your understanding of Jesus and his role in your salvation. And then receive him into your life. Just do that right where you sit, just between you and God. I, I know you can do that if you're ready to do that. Some of you are believers here today. You've been believers for a while, but you're in the midst of a small or moderate or even big run. You've been running from God lately, and uh, you're lacking intimacy with him, or maybe there's some behaviors that you're stuck in. We talked about this the first week, and I want to give you a chance right now in the quietness just to turn to him as well. And then there's a third group here today that we talked about again in this series, that have heard a call from God. You're a more veteran believer. You've learned to hear his voice. And like Jonah, you've heard a call from him, and you've just given God a resounding no, or you've been quiet. And, you know, when we had those of you stand who have received a call like that and said no and wanted to prayer the first week, between the three morning services, we had about two to 300 people stand. And I was so proud of you all for your honesty, but then I also started to dream I dreamed, what would Scottsdale, Phoenix, and this world be like if two or three hundred people who had a specific call from God said yes? Wow! I, I just, I can't even imagine. And so we want to give you a chance, too, if you're ready to say yes to him, to do that. Again, in, in your own quietness. So we're going to be quiet now for about four or five minutes. And uh, when we're done, I'm going to close us in prayer. So enjoy your time with the Lord right now.
with, uh, with your head still bowed, just listen to the words of 1 John as he ends his epistle. He says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and he is eternal life. God, we thank you that you're desire and choice for humanity was not to leave us stuck in our sins, but to deliver us through your son, Jesus Christ. And he is the only one worthy. He's the only one that could have done so. And you knew that and you sent him anyways, and we're so grateful. Thank you for the supreme sacrifice of him. And God, I thank you that as we've learned from Jonah, that we need but turn toward you and cry out to you. And that as we do that in and through Jesus, that you hear us. I just thank you for your grace that knows no bounds, for your forgiveness that the Bible says is as far as east is from the west, and that you throw our sins in the sea of forgetfulness. And so, God, I pray that for any who have done business with you here today by turning toward you, whether for the first time for salvation, whether uh, once again for just running back to you, or even in heeding and hearing your call, pray, Lord, you'd give them a real encouragement and an assurance as they leave here today. Assure them that, they've, that as they've come to you, that you've heard them through Jesus, and that you love them, and that as Jesus himself said, you will never leave them or forsake them, and that he who is for us will never be against us. So we go now in the name of your son, Jesus. We thank you for your goodness and for your grace. We pray that you would journey with us. In the power of your spirit, in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. And everybody says together, Amen. God bless you, and I'll see you guys next week.